Don't talk to me unless it's about this. Darla and I are talking about the second half of The Immortalists by Chloe Benjamin. We've now read all the sibling stories and really focusing on Daniel and Varya in the second half. And we have a really special way to start this episode. We have an audio message from Chloe Benjamin herself. I asked her how writing The Immortalists changed her, and her answer is just so lovely, and we're so grateful and honored that she made this message for the show. So thank you, Chloe. Hi, Caitlin. Thank you so much for including my work in your podcast. I am here to tell you about how The Immortalists changed me. I often feel like my creative work is a little bit ahead of my own psychology when it comes to um, the takeaways of the work or the points that I'm trying to make. So, for instance, with The Immortalists, the real takeaway of the book is that there's freedom and uncertainty as opposed to a desire to control and find out at all costs. And I could write that takeaway, but I didn't really feel that in my own life or experience it until after I wrote the book. And it was in part, I think, writing the book that helped me to internalize that, but also talking to people who were readers afterward. So I think the book sort of initiated that journey in me, and I am grateful to it for doing so, even though when it comes to accepting uncertainty, I certainly still have a long way to go. And in part one, we talked about the emotions that are driving Simon and Clara and this juxtaposition of what is considered rational versus emotional. And it made me realize that I think Simon and Clara were the the two who leaned into being emotionally driven. And in the second half, Daniel and Varya are more the, like, we're not emotional, we're rational. And I have some thoughts on that later. Um, but to start, I think... You know, Simon and Clara, they were both driven in part by the shame and this urgency. Uh, I think Simon was also really driven by this desire to live his life in the full color spectrum. I feel like he was maybe the only sibling who was trying to be happy in his present life. And Clara, I think, started trying to really be happy in her present life. But that light seemed to to dim in her over time, especially after Simon's death. And now we've got Daniel and Varya both saying, oh, we're super rational, logical, and not driven by emotions, but I think we're always driven by emotions. So I'm curious what you think were the powerful emotions driving Daniel and Varya or any of the other characters that we saw more of in the second half. Well, I think you make a really good point about the, like Simon and Clara were, like they gave in to being driven by emotions, which I think is something that I don't think we really recognize in our, in, in life very often that there's like, we have, we as individuals have the ability to, to, to like let ourselves like give into it, right. Give into being driven by, by emotion. And in separate ways, like you said, Simon may have been the only sibling who actually sought, you know, like pleasure or a joyful life. Right. Maybe like, and so he I think use the emotions to like lead him in that direction. Clara, on the other hand, used the emotions in the opposite kind of uh, almost against herself, right? Right up until the end when she kills herself. So, you know, like she uses them in the opposite direction. 
And then you're right that Daniel, Daniel and Varya were like very, you know, we think about these jobs of like doctor, scientist, emotionless jobs, right? Very, And we hold that at a really high regard, don't we? You know, we're supposed to like magician and dancer. And, and so it is really interesting that the, that, that, uh, Daniel and, Va- and Varya are in these professions in which they're ex- kind of expected not to be emotional. And yet when it really comes down to it, they're almost, they are, I wouldn't say more driven by emotion, but more controlled by their emotions because they are denying them, right? Because they are pushing away from them. And that doesn't really answer your question as to what emotions they are, but that was kind of my view of it from like the big picture. Totally. I agree with all of that. I noticed I really hated Daniel's character. And I don't remember if I hated him as much the first time I read this, but I finished this chapter and I was like, this freaking idiot, like, you deserve to die. You were so bad. And then it made me think, I was like, oh God, if I hated him that much, I probably saw the most of myself in him. <laughs> That's usually how it how it plays out. And so I thought about, yeah, I, t- I tried to think what is the more, you know, I think the the less empathetic view of Daniel is he was just on an ego trip and he didn't like getting his ego hurt. And he has, he's really driven by a desire to be right, I think. And he can only be right if he has an adversary. And so you see his adversary change throughout the story. You know, when Simon leaves, it's Simon. He hates Simon so much. Simon has ruined his life. It's all Simon's fault. Then his adversary becomes Raj. He really hates Raj and is like out to get him. Um, and then it becomes the woman, this who we found out was named called Bruna, but for a long time he just calls her the woman. And he can only forgive himself for the way he treated Simon by blaming this woman. That's the only way he's able to get there. And I know we're gonna talk later about his whole theory that you need an enemy. And I unfortunately could relate to this idea of when you want to be right or you have like fiery energy or anger, you want to put it somewhere and it's really easy to put it on somebody else. Uh, And I know you and I have talked about this. I remember when our daycare was closed because like they didn't have substitutes or some some reason that I saw as like you should not be close to this reason. And I was so mad and I was so mad at them and you were pushing me to think like, it's okay to be mad, but maybe where other places you could put this energy? Is it into working out? Is it into, I don't know, finding something else to do or like anger journaling or like screaming into a pillow? I can relate to Daniel's, his kind of need for an adversary. And it's not a good trait. <laughs> it's something to work on. Uh, but I think he was really driven by this desire to be right and to be, I don't know if the winner is really the, the word for him but to not feel like he did anything wrong. Yeah, to feel like, yeah, that that and that the other person lost, right? That the other person was wrong. He needs to be right. The other person needs to be wrong. And I want to also like emphasize that it's, it's not just any adversary, right? You pick the adversary. Daniel could have picked many different adversaries throughout his life, but he purposely chose these. Simon was easy. He's the younger brother, right? He's kind of like, uh, he was like the weakest link. He's, cause he's, he's, you know, so young and he's kind of, and he just like ran off, right? How easy is that? Like he said, he couldn't hate Clara as much because like she seemed to have agency. Um, she made a decision. She called again. 
right? But Simon was was easy to just hate and to just keep at a very far distance. And then Raj was also really easy to hate, right? He's far away. He can't. He, he doesn't want to hate Clara, right? Because he already has some a bond with her. So let's hate the other person. Um, and when Raj comes for Thanksgiving and starts talking some sense at, at, as in Raj's way, um, it was harder for Daniel, right? He had to confront the adversary right in front of him. And, and Daniel's not a brave person, right? They're not a brave character. And so that was really hard for him to do. He couldn't confront that, that adversary. I'd like to compare it to like, sometimes it's so easy to be like mad at my daughter, right? She's six, but it's so easy to be mad at a kid. But am I really mad at her at that moment? Because she's sick. So in my logical brain, I understand that she can't reason. She, you know, whatever the, th- the, the frustration that I have with her at that moment, it's probably not actually about her, right? There's pro- it's probably a frustration I have with myself or with some other aspect of my life that is harder to find adversary, my adversary in. It is harder to fight that part. That's that, that part might fight back more. Right. Or that part might tell me something about myself I don't want to know. Whereas if I just get mad at the kid, you know, that's easy. Well, I want to hear more about what you think of Daniel not being a brave character. I agree. And his even, I don't know if you remember, but the moment when he shoots Bruna or no, the moment when he gets shot, when he's about to shoot Bruna, he is talking about I'm being brave, having courage. I'm doing this for my family. And I remember being like, oh, what a freaking joke. This is not bravery. This is not courage. And so in your mind, what would it have looked like for Daniel to have been brave? Well, I first want to say that as much as I love this whole book and all the characters and everything, I felt like the second half of it was much less realistic than the first. And one of the issues I had, and but then when I went back and looked at it, I was like, realized all four of their deaths were a little, un, in my mind, unrealistic. They kind of went to the absolute extreme, right? There was none of one of their deaths that was just like a little, well, I guess, Varya, we don't really know. But like, it was just like that got, even her leaving her work was like pushed to the extreme, right? It wasn't like an in-between moment, a mediocre moment of life, right? So many people. Right. They were all dramatic. Very dramatic. And so with Daniel, I just kind of felt like the story was a little bit unrealistic to me. And maybe that was part of the whole, you know, the plot of it being these, the the immortalist, right? It was, there's a reason why she named the book after that, after Clara's act, Um, because to bring in that magic, I think that magical ism that, that, like, you know, that lack of realism. And so when Daniel did that whole part, I, I just, the, his whole his whole piece, I kind of had a hard time relating to. So when you ask, like, what would it have looked like for him to be brave? I don't really know because because his character kind of didn't seem like a real person to me. I'm almost wondering if, for him to be brave, I feel like this is a, a Brene Brown moment of like bravery is vulnerability. You know, for him, yeah. being brave would have been saying to Mira, like telling her the whole story about this woman. He never had told her that. He was so worried that she would see him as this irrational person like Clara. And if he had talked to her and said, This is what happened, and I blame myself for 
my distance with Simon. I blame myself for his death, blah, blah, blah. If he had just put it all out there, that that would have been brave for him. That, that was the hardest thing for him to do. It wasn't hard for him to just like become a lunatic about the whole Bruna situation and go off. I think it was almost maybe with the second read easier for me to see it as it was still on the dramatic side definitely and that doesn't bother me in this book but I think it was almost easier for me to see the downfall and the slide and how this crazy ridiculous thing could have happened um of just like you see it starts with him getting uh getting his ego bruised at work and being told and I think especially what really hurt him at work is they accused him of being emotionally driven and not rational and that's his deepest insecurity they said oh you're making kind of preferential choices and he thought of it as no i am just doing the facts of this person is or is not qualified to go to war and and then eddie comes in at this very opportune moment when he's looking for an adversary to attach himself to and eddie kind of i don't think Eddie's doing on purpose i mean he's not eddie didn't want him to go kill bruna um but eddie definitely plants all these seeds of, you know, this woman is bad on and on, uh, kind of the way you hear about, you know, people getting sucked into a cult and all it takes is just being at that one moment of being really raw and low in life. What makes you say that Eddie definitely didn't want him to kill Bruna? Well, cause he killed Eddie instead of letting him kill Bruna or he killed, uh, Daniel. I think if he had been open to Bruna being killed, he would have just not responded to that call or, you know, responded, but taken his time. And yeah, I think Eddie wanted, I don't think Eddie wanted Bruna to die. I think he wanted justice to be served. And I don't know if he would have considered that justice. He obviously was very torn up about this woman potentially affecting Clara's death, but he seemed, I think he almost seemed okay with, he seemed resigned to the outcome when he called Daniel and said, it's it's over, you know, never mind, just leave it. And yeah, I think I think Eddie himself was on a whole little rampage about making this case. I don't think that case held a lot of weight. And I don't know, do you know this is based on a true story, the case oh. against that whole family? Oh, fascinating. Yeah. So it's based on a true story of a I think it was a Romani family and it's a, a this is kind of a, a sidebar, but I think you find it interesting that the Romani have and, and they talk about this in the book, have faced a lot of uh, persecution and like negative stereotypes. And Chloe Benjamin, yeah, like I said, she based this on a, a true story of this case against a fortune teller. And she has received some criticism for reenacting a negative stereotype of this group that they're fortune tellers that are maybe giving false fortunes and she's she's been very vocal and like i take full responsibility for that i uh did not want to be doing that and like i know that my intent does not match my impact you know she's kind of said all the repairing things um she's you know she said i did this because i actually thought it would do the opposite it would expose to people how ridiculous these stereotypes are when you hear Eddie talk about them, you're like, ooh, that really doesn't sound good. Like, that's not a good way to portray people. So I think she, I got the intended impact of 
face showing you a mirror that the stereotype isn't positive. And it, it kind of just this whole thing made me think like, God, you really can't win as an author. Like there's always going to be something no matter what. It's hard to to try to tell stories and knowing that people are going to interpret them many, many ways. And that I think a lot of times people read books assuming that you as the author are like green lighting anything a character says or does as like okay behavior. When in fact, a lot of times I think authors are doing the opposite and they're trying to show how bad these things are by having characters do them. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, she seems to do the same thing with all of, you know, to her talk about Judaism and, and especially the conversation between Daniel and Raj, right? Like she wanted to bring up points you know, I think any good author brings up points for you to think about, right? A good author doesn't tell you what to think about them. So even with the Romani people, it's like she may have been relive or reinvigorating a negative stereotype, but also she was laying it out for you to, you know, put the story together to go do your own research if you wanted to, um, to see how ridiculous that the assumptions about about people might be and about any people, right? Just to like, you know, to bring it into a broader perspective. And when you have that conversation between Daniel and Raj about like how, um, you know, the, the difference between current persecution and past persecution or at the conversation between Clara and Raj that we talked about last time of like the suffering and the, um, the burden and the, the, opportunities that are available to different people, right, at different periods of history. And I think, you know, it was interesting because after reading some of those articles, I looked up Chloe Benjamin and her religious um, affiliation to see where, because she obviously brings in a lot of Judaism into this book, and um, saw that her her dad's second wife was a spiritual director of Judaism. And, and, um, and so she got a lot of influence there, right? But I think she also raises some really questionable points on both sides, right? And it's like on all points, which which is really a a hard thing to do, especially if you have an opinion, right? Like I can imagine Chloe Benjamin has an opinion about these things that she's writing about. And like you said, it's not like she's green lighting everything that each of these characters says. Right. She's representing things that she's probably heard people say or wonders if people think and I'm sure people have thought and said all the things in this book and puts it out there for us to like you said look at and decide what we think about it yeah there is no new thought right that's what they always say there's no new thought there's no new idea we're just like regurgitating old ones and seeing new ways to present them all right everybody I've got my songs for the characters in part two starting with Daniel for Danielle, I'm picking the song Science Versus Romance by Rilo Kiley. And this song, I think, could also work very well for Varya. I think both of their songs are intermixed. So here are some of the lyrics that stand out to me. I used to think if I could realize I die, then I would be a lot nicer. Used to believe in a lot more. Now I just see straight ahead. As for my days, I spend them waiting. I'm telling you, I'm lonely too. You go and call yourself the boss but we're not robots inside a grid. I used to think If I could realize I'd die Then I would be A lot nicer Used to believe 
Well, I wanted to talk about the power of stories. This is obviously a story, and it talks about the power of stories within it, the power of stories, the power of thoughts. And it's like the whole book is kind of asking this question, how does what you believe shape the life you live and the actions you take? And this feels very life coachy, so it's very on brand for for you, Darla. You know, we see Mira and Varya, uh, they have this interesting conversation about this topic, what is real, what is not. And let's see, I want to read it. It's when it was right after Daniel has died and they're wondering if they should tell Gertie the truth of how he died and what happened. And Mira thinks they should tell Gertie what happened. Varya wanted to say that Daniel had become fixated on a local woman's crimes after his suspension, that the notion of justice gave him something to work for, to believe in. Mira wanted to be honest. What does it matter whether we tell her the truth? Mira asked. The story isn't going to bring Daniel back. It won't change how he died. But Varya disagreed. She knew that stories did have the power to change things, the past and the future, even the present. You know, of course, there are life circumstances. I don't want to say that life is all about just what you believe affects how your life plays out. And I think that life is more affected by our beliefs and our thoughts than at least I think I give credit to. And I keep thinking of this phrase. I think the phrase is reality is an illusion. I think that's the phrase I've heard people say. My question is, what do you think about in this situation of does it matter what they tell Gertie, how Daniel died? And then more broadly, how does what we believe shape the actions we take? Yeah, it's it's interesting because in that scene, I'm going to read the this one one part where he dies, right? The the bullet entered his thigh, rupturing the femoral artery so that all his blood was lost in less than 10 minutes. His death did not point to the failure of the body. It pointed to the power of the human mind, an entirely different adversary, the fact that thoughts have wings. And what's interesting, I was, I was actually just hanging out with a friend who ha- had been shot in her femoral artery 10 years ago or something. And it was an accidental shooting. And long story short, she's not dead. Right. She see, she survived. And it is one of those injuries, though, that people are like, I mean, it's surprising to live through. Right. Because you can lose so much blood so quickly. But I thought that was really fascinating. Actually sent this passage to her, but really fascinating that 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 last part. Right. That it pointed not to the failure of the body, but the power of the human mind. I mean, not that you can, you know, overcome any anything with your thoughts, you know, especially gunshots. But interesting to actually have a real life example of that and whereas in in daniel my friend is a very you know strong brave person who wanted to survive that moment and maybe daniel didn't Mm. you know that this was he was supposed to this was his bravery right he was giving himself up for this he didn't know that he was walk. he thought he was walking in there and killing someone else but you know, this was, he was, he was, well, he was allowed to be a martyr if he dies in that situation. And so his thoughts kind of, and, and the, his thoughts dictated that, right? What happened and surviving felt really hard to Daniel at that moment. What was he surviving for? A job that wasn't there for him anymore, a career that he had spent his life, you know, convincing himself of how important it was and how noble it was. And, a home life that didn't really seem that, you know, in, invigorating to him, siblings that had died and, you know, just very, 
seems like a very, uh, it was easier for him, I think, to choose to go at that moment. And he was so sure that he was choosing everything that it wasn't because it was his date of death that that the power of that wasn't pushing that him him to that moment but he was choosing every step of the way and i i think he was driven by these outside forces more than his own choices yeah agreed great we're done no i'm just kidding <laughs> well the other thing i want to say about stories was there was a really interesting part talking about Varya's OCD. I don't think they ever say OCD, but... They do at I, one point. Oh, they do? Okay. Yeah. Varya's... Let's see what's happening in this moment. She's... Oh, she's talking about her experience going to therapy. And here's a paragraph. Varya has had enough therapy to know that she's telling herself stories. She knows her faith, that rituals have power, that thoughts can change outcomes or ward off misfortune is a magic trick, fiction, perhaps, but necessary for survival. And yet, and yet, is it a story if you believe it? Her deeper secret, the reason she doesn't think she'll ever be rid of the disorder, is that on some days she doesn't think it's a disorder. On some days she doesn't think it's absurd to believe that a thought can make something come true. And I thought that was just such a powerful flip of the mind of, yeah, how... What, how do we decide something is a disorder or not? Obviously, in the situation, this, her OCD is negatively affecting her life. So I agree. It's something that she is going to benefit from treating and working on. But, you know, we, we tell ourselves certain stories are, are good. You know, if you believe, if you have positive affirmations and you believe you can be successful, it'll come true. That's good. And then in her situation, they're telling her just because it's a thought, it's not going to affect your outcomes at all. You know, that's not true. Yeah. We'll also think of like how we, so, so like your, your point right there, where it's like, if you have these OCD tendencies, so bring up one of Varya's, right. Which is like, she, you know, the scrubbing her hands until they like are raw, right. Okay. This is a disorder. These things are negatively affecting your life. You need to get help for them. But what about the uh, 80 hour work week that so many Americans just keep on doing week after week and live in this world in which their jobs are killing them? Do we say that's a disorder? I mean, I guess we we talk about workaholic being workaholic. Is there is there treatment for work for being a workaholic? Not really. I mean, you can get coaching, you can get therapy, right? Well, this is interesting. I recently talked to someone, this is for another podcast episode, the episode on Americana, and they said that they live in the Netherlands for a while and there they treat burnout as an actual medical diagnosis. Yeah. So, so there, you know, obviously in some parts of the world that this is, this is a thing, right? That would be considered a disorder, but in a lot of places it's not, right? It's, if you work hard, if somebody's coming home, going to, I mean, think about how much we revere the person who like gets up early, the early bird gets the worm, right? And gets off to the office and then comes home late at night and is like earning for their family or, you know, contributing. I mean, some, and some of these people are doing long hours to contribute to amazing things, right? And, and we, at, to what extent, right? To what, what harm are they doing to the rest of their lives? How are their families suffering? How is their mental health, their physical health, their emotional health suffering from this? And yet we don't call that a disorder. So it is really interesting what we're willing 
to stick in one category or think about social media, right? Of like, we, we talk about this all the time, you and I do about like social media and how to interact with it in a way that makes sense. And I mean, people, people's lives are, are negatively affected by social media every single second. And yet there's not disorders for that, right? It's just like, oh, let's, let's have another top 10 list of ways to, you know, make social media a more healthy part of your life or ways to disconnect or, you know, so it is really interesting what we, what we put in one bucket as this is harmful and these are, these are okay. It's all judgment. I feel like I have this phrase wrong. I wanted to say reality is an illusion or perception. Oh, it's going to drive me crazy. Perception is reality. Uh, There's some phrase that I feel like is just encapsulating all this. Okay, time for the next song. For Varya, we've got Angel by First Aid Kit. And again, these songs go either way, Varya and Daniel. I've been afraid all of my life crippled with anxiety, shame, and doubt. What has that fear ever done for me but hold me back? All of this pain that I've kept concealed, but if I didn't speak it, it wouldn't be real. Give me love and give me compassion, self-forgiveness, and give me some passion. I love you even if you don't love me. Oh, angel, can't you see you're free? Oh, what is jealousy and hate ever done for you? But remind you of what you think you like So give me So talking about siblings, this, I, I feel like the story is, is very relevant to us because we come from big families. I'm one of four. You're one of six, right? I'm one of eight. One of eight, even more. For you, what parts of the sibling dynamics did you relate to? And then were there other parts that felt very foreign? There were a couple parts where um, Daniel was talking about... Uh, how he wishes, let me see if I can get to it easily. He wishes that everyone lived close, basically. He says, this is when Mira was asking him. He said, we're not not close. Well, you're not close, said Mira. Sometimes we are, said Daniel, though the truth was muddier. There were times he thought of his siblings and felt love sing from him like a shofar, rich with joy and agony and eternal recognition. Those three made from the same star stuff as he those he'd known from the beginning of the beginning. But when he was with them, the smallest infraction made him irreversibly resentful. And then later on, he says, Daniel could not understand why they didn't feel what he had, the regret of separation and the bliss of being returned. He waited. After all, what could he say? Don't drift too far. You'll miss us. But as the years passed and they did not, he became wounded and despairing, then bitter. So, I have one brother out of the eight of us who still lives in the home, my hometown where we were brought up. And recently he was going through something big in his life and he said to us, I wish you all were home. Like, I wish you all lived, lived nearby. And I really heard Daniel, when I read that line about Daniel, I was like, I can really relate to that, um, to hearing that from my brother. But in the same respect of that I can hear my brother saying that I don't 
I don't feel these same things that he was saying about his siblings. Like that, I, I guess because I'm one of the ones who's moved away and moved the furthest away. So I don't feel that same. I, 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 I'm the other people, right? I'm Clara who just decided to go and do something else um, and didn't, and never came back. But I do see, and when he said stuff like the, um, those three made from the same star stuff as he, I remember growing up and being like, I don't need to have friends. I don't need to like have a big community, which is so funny because I'm such an extrovert, but I have built in friends. I have my siblings and that's all that all, that's all I need. I mean, when you have seven siblings, it's like, that's more friends than most people have. So mm-hmm. I do, I do hear him, you know, I do hear what he's saying there that these are the same same people. And then that la- that other line that he said, the smallest infraction made him irreversibly resentful. And it's amazing how family can do that. How, you know, I, I feel this like tight, this, this connection to them that I don't have with anyone else. And yet the smallest thing, they can set me off more than anybody else. And, and I bet you, they wouldn't even really know that some of them would, but others wouldn't. And, but, but, inside, right? Like I feel it, you know, I get home and I'm like the littlest thing that's that I would excuse someone else for my siblings don't get the same. Um, they don't get off the hook as easily. So, so I I could see that it was like, it almost was, um, you know, she, she, Chloe did a really good job of like showing both sides of the, the, the sibling dynamic, the, the ways that it's really, um, kind of like soul filling and the ways that it's also really draining. Well, I had wanted to read that same quote that you read, but actually you left out the one part that I had want that really I related to right after he says, sometimes the smallest infraction made him irreversibly resentful. Sometimes it was easier to think of them as characters, straight-laced Varya, Clara, dreamy and heedless, than to confront them in all of their off-putting, fully-bloomed adulthood their morning breath and foolish choices, their lives snaking into unfamiliar underbrush. And I really relate to the way in a family, it is easy to think of everyone's kind of got their role. Everyone's a little caricature. And it's, you know, in some ways it's, okay, you really know that person. And so you know what, you know, their tics. And it also can have this really negative outcome of, you know, then I don't give one of my siblings the benefit of the doubt that I should because I've put them in this box. And I will feel put in a box and get really upset that, oh, they they all think I have this hot temper. And I do have a hot temper. <laughs> and I don't like that they know it and that they can easily point it out because they know me better than my friends. And some of my friends don't actually know that about me. So I could relate to the way you have to really fight against that. And I don't think any of these siblings fought against that. They all, there's so many times that I underlined where they're all thinking of each other in these little boxes and they don't see themselves as three-dimensional at all. I can relate to it all with a lot less loathing though. Like I can't relate to the distance between them. I'm very close with all my siblings. I'm very grateful for that. When I think about, this is, it's really so sad, the distance between all these siblings. There's, there's a couple other quotes about siblings, but wait, do you want to say something? Yeah, there was one that Simon said, because like, I think Daniel, we hear more, Daniel talk more about his relationship with his siblings, because I think he does like that adversary idea that we were talking about before, that that theme is is a very 
prominent in Daniel's life. So he has his siblings are often his adversaries, right? So he talks about them more. But like there is this point where it says, uh, Simon says, he heard this, the siren song of family, how it pulls you despite all sense. And I don't, I think this was Daniel hearing it, but because uh, it says in Simon's voice, he heard the siren song of family, how it pulls you despite all sense, how it forces you to discard your convictions your righteous selfhood in favor of profound dependence. And so like that was Simon's view of of family, which is different from Daniel's and different from my experience and sounds like yours too, that like our families don't make us discard our convictions. Like if anything, I am more attached to my convictions, my righteousness, right? That like hotheadedness that you talk about, right? It's like your family can see that and and like you, you stick to it. You got to stick to your guns, right? But Simon didn't feel that feeling. You know, Simon was like, it just makes you feel this more connected to them, which is interesting because Simon was the one who didn't contact anyone after he left. Mm-hmm. That was the next quote I was going to read. Great. <laughs> <laughs> well done. <laughs> I love that we both highlighted those. This is also really reminding me of reading... Conversations with Friends by Sally Rooney, which I read with Marie. Have you read that book? Yes. It's been a while, okay. though. And I've read and her so, others. And I feel like Sally Rooney books, I'm like, they're all now one. The story is definitely blended in your mind. Yeah. Well, she had, there was one scene where uh, one of the characters, it's a husband and wife, and the wife writes this scathing email to his wife, to her husband's, like, girlfriend, basically. He's having an open affair. And... She just speaks so horribly about him. And I remember reading it and being like, there's no way this woman actually loves her husband if she talks about him so poorly. And Marie pointed out to me, she said, you know, think about it, though. The people you know and love the most, if you wanted to, if they hurt you, you could be the meanest you could ever be to them, whether that be like a partner or siblings. And this is reminding me of that. Like when you have so much capacity for love, it can also really tip the other way because you do know everything about them. I feel like in this story, we saw it a lot of the times tipping that negative way. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder, did we really see it tipping that negative way or? Or maybe I mean, I with, guess, maybe I'm focused Daniel. on Daniel. <laughs> yeah, that's what I feel like. I wonder if that's really Daniel. I mean, there's the part where Varya calls him on his day, you know, and is like, and he says that line, or if I can find like wishing I, she was here instead of yeah it enrages him that Varya cares enough to call him now but not on any other day and certainly not enough to come see him instead she watches from above as he scurries around never coming down to Nerveen but that is Daniel's take on it I know Varya talked about that too but it seemed like it was less rage fueled Daniel just seems to be like very there's a lot that he's angry about and I think his siblings embody parts of him that part or parts that he wishes he had, you know, I think he wishes he was as carefree and followed his dreams like Simon, right? I think he wishes that he was as kind of detached from reality as Clara and, and had so much conviction in what she knew she wanted to do. And I think he, um, you know, wishes he could have the like separation that all three of his siblings have. So I think he, it's easy for him to kind of spew this, kind of take the worst, the part, the parts of him that never materialized, that maybe these parts of him, he, him, he wished he had, um, 
and hate his siblings for them is basically what I think happened. It reminds me of, I might have talked about this in another podcast, but it reminds me of this therapist, this couple's therapist that I had in Portland. And she one time said, I was like complaining about something. My husband was there and I was complaining about him. (laughs) And she listened to me lovingly and then said, it sounds like you're having a hard time accepting your life right now. And I was like, damn you. <laughs> this is not about <laughs> me and my, the way I'm doing things. This is what I'm not doing the things wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And so I kind of feel that same way about Daniel. He puts everything on everyone else, but really he's, he, he's not, has never, he never got to accept his life the way that it is. Hello everyone. It's Caitlin. I wanted to first say a sincere thank you for listening and also invite you to join our Patreon community. It's a place to continue these conversations off air, to submit your own thoughts and ideas to be on the show, for you to join a community that will help you prioritize fun and enjoyment in your own creative endeavors, whatever those may be, and for us to come together for in-person events. You can see what the community is all about for free by signing up for our newsletter where we share little snippets of what's going on on Patreon or go right ahead and join the community right now. All the links are in the show notes. Well, do you want to talk more about that quote from Daniel about having adversaries? Yeah, yeah. Which one was that? I have it here. Do you want me to read it? Yes. It's impossible to survive without dehumanizing the enemy, without creating an enemy in the first place. Compassion was the purview of civilians, not those whose job was to act. Oh, acting requires you to choose one thing over another, and it's better to help one side than neither. I don't want to believe it. You know, I don't want to believe. But a lot of it did feel... It felt real. Like when I read it, I, was, I read it a number of times, but it's like, I, I mean, if you break it down, it's impossible to survive without dehumanizing the enemy. Well, right? Like, I don't want to believe that. I, I mean, first of all, dehumanizing the enemy is such a problem, right? It's why we like what, how we get into so many issues. World politics, right? It's like the othering. So dehumanizing the enemy is already an issue. But now you're telling me it's impossible to survive without it? right? Without creating an enemy in the first place. Hold on a second. So now not only do I, I have to have an enemy, but I have to dehumanize it in order to survive. That's a hard pill to swallow. Yeah. It really, it was a kind of gross feeling quote to read because it did feel like it was holding up this mirror of, oh God, is this the way I exist? Is this the way humanity exists? And I don't feel qualified to discuss war and international conflict and you know if how we but could you solve have international... a podcast caitlin of course that's you're qualified. true i'm qualified to discuss anything <laughs> even how to resolve issues without dehumanizing the enemy i would like to believe that's possible but i like to think about this more in the sense of just regular human life not war I, i'd like to think it's not the way it has to be i do think it it is kind of a default human reaction. And I don't know if that's more biological or social the way that that's the case. But I would like to believe that there's a way to evolve beyond that. And to, to I, I don't think it's wrong to say, you know, it's kind of, it's better to stand up for something than for nothing, uh, which is a little bit different from it's better to help one side than neither. 
I do think it's important to, you know, stand for something as opposed to just being in between on everything. And also, I would hope there's a way to do that without actively dehumanizing or hating or putting down some other side. Unfortunately, though, that's kind of the way things do go in all politics and social causes. Like even people standing up for what they consider a social cause, oftentimes like a social and humane cause are oftentimes putting down other people in the process. Well, and even if you just like look at that second part of the quote, the the last part, which is the acting requires you to choose one thing over another. So even if you're not actively putting down something else, you are you are actively choosing one thing, right? You know, when what I think about it in like the world of nonprofits, when a nonprofit decides to fund one initiative, they are not funding another initiative, right? When a, you know, and then let's go into like our own lives. When we are choosing one career that interests us, we are not choosing another one that does not interest us, right? When you're choosing to live in one place because of certain reasons, we are actively choosing not to live somewhere else because of others. And those, all those choices have consequences, right? And, and I'm someone who's very indecisive and I will almost find this weird safety and comfort in not making decisions and being like, well, I haven't chosen yet, so it's it's fine. But that in itself is a decision. I'm choosing to wait or to not do either of them. And so it's helpful to remember, no, you always are choosing one thing over the other. So you better make it the thing you actually want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think this came up a lot with the with you know the pandemic and with vaccines, right? It's like the choices that people were making were affecting other people. And so, and not making a choice is also making a choice. You know, when you, when you decide not to do something, you're also making a choice there. I think it's just part of our interconnected world that all of our choices then affect the people around us. But I don't know that that necessarily means that we must have an enemy right? If I make a choice, does that mean that I have to have, in order to survive, I must have an enemy? I don't believe that. I think. But maybe the enemy, it's... like maybe I would say my enemy is apathy, right? Like I guess there is always something that you're against. I think of that as more having values than enemies. So maybe that's just a positive spin on it. Right. <laughs> just silver lining <laughs> that one. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And is it possible? So Caitlin Hudson, is it possible to survive without dehumanizing the enemy? I would like to think so. Yes. <laughs> Make a decision. <laughs> yes, it is possible to survive without dehumanizing the enemy. Yeah. I get how Daniel got to think that and live that way. And also, I don't believe that. And also, it makes sense because of like, look at Daniel's character, right? You know, the way that he lived where he had to, it had to be a black and white situation, had to be right and wrong. Well, if you believe that you must have an enemy and that you must dehumanize that enemy in order to survive, then yes, you will continue to see enemies everywhere. If you don't believe that, if you believe that strong values can, can be your way of surviving, then you're going to see strong values everywhere. Well, it makes me think of, I guess I would call it mental dexterity and 
if I think about all the characters right now, there are so many places in which they were so close-minded and were not able to see beyond their little view. And then other times where they were so able to use their mental dexterity, like Daniel rationalizing, sending people to war. He was able to spin that for himself as a, a good thing, a service to be doing. But, you know, Raj living his life as a magician or all these things about Raj, he had this very close-minded view of this is bad for these reasons. And Varya too, she was really able to spin her research as this, you know, doesn't everyone just want love and connection? Or I forget her little spiel about it that she gave to Luke. And we haven't even talked about Luke yet. <laughs> um, but in other ways, she was so close-minded. And so it's, uh, yeah, I feel like this whole question of, you know, enemies, does this, is this the way it works or not? Is just making me think of, there are some ways in which we're all very capable of thinking creatively and not capable of thinking creatively. What are you saying? We all have limits, Caitlin? Oh, unfortunately. Well, that's why, swallow. that's why we need life coaches. <laughs> is that a plug for coaching by Darla? <laughs> uh, I wanted yes, to, I did want to, I wanted to point, bring out something else this, because this I feel as passionate about, and this is like when we were talking about this idea of like, apathy and strong values is I wanted us to have this call, a call to action, um, which we haven't done before, but there's this part in, in the story where Varya is walking in with Luke and she sees Clyde, who is the security guy. And she says, Varya has not exchanged more than daily greetings with Clyde in the 10 years she's worked in the lab. She reaches for the heavy steel door and, and punches Annie's latest code into the keypad beside it. Your mother's 101. And, you know, she's passed by him for 10 years, right? And all she has had is has hello and goodbye to him. And here's Luke, who's been there for a day and has already found out much more than she has about Clyde. And I wanted us to have this call to action of, like, who in our daily life is in that position that we want to change? And this is part of that, like, resisting the apathy. Changing, but also it goes along with that idea of, like, you know, the thoughts can our thoughts how how important our thoughts are right it's not the matter of walking into work every day and doing the work but it's also thinking about the people who are around you so who fits into that who's a who's a Clyde in your life well it's interesting that you brought up it's your thoughts around it that matter because that's what I thought of for myself is that in Portland Oregon everyone is very friendly and talks to you and you have regular full conversations with people that in other cities you know I feel like people don't engage. Uh, someone checking you, checking you out at the grocery store, at a cafe. But I notice what happens is I engage in these conversations with this low level of anxiety. Like I'm worried about, am I being nice enough or am I being fake nice? And they're knowing that I'm just being fake nice. Am I, uh, do I have time for this? Um, how much, how long have we actually been talking? Like if it's at a cafe and I'm like trying to go someplace. Um how am I going to segue out of this? Like, I'm very bad at segueing out of conversations. And so then I get anxious about like, where's the pause going to be? And how am I going to make it natural and not rude? And so my call to myself is to engage in these conversations without that anxiety and just talk to them and try not to think about the rest of this stuff and just focus on what I'm discussing with them. I also think there are places where I go in and out of an idea 
uh, you know, sometimes people wear name tags and that's great, but there's places where they don't. And I want to ask for people's names more in those situations when I'm just saying, you know, quick, hi, how are you to them? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I like that. I like that. It wasn't just a single person. I think, you know, Clyde represents this for us, right? Like I don't, I think it would be, I don't, I don't think most people would have a single person in their life that they would bring up, but it's more of this kind of how do I behave in these situations? Because I would say something similar that I like, I actually engage with a lot of people around me. And I think part of it is me trying to practice my Arabic, you know, in a, in a country where Arabic's the first language. And others of it is because I just, that's the kind of person that I am, or I want to make, I, I people matter to me. But I noticed that there's kind of like, I could go into it on a deeper level. You know, there's like a cafe near us that I go to all the time for the last year and a half that we've lived here. They know us so well. And some of their staff members, I have gotten to know their personal lives, but others, I've seen them for a year and a half and they're so awesome to us. And yet I don't, I can't even remember their name or I have no idea what their personal life is like. And so I'd like to show a little bit more interest in, 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 in like people in that way. Call to action, everybody. Thank you, Darla. I like that you brought that up. Yeah, call to action. Who's your Clyde? Hi, everyone. This is Leslie Lindsay. I am coming to you from the Chicago area, and I just wanted to tell you a little bit about The Immortalists, a novel by Chloe Benjamin. I felt like it was almost several novellas that were hinged together by one common thread, life. Here, I found so many different passages and metaphors. They're just absolutely stunning and gorgeous. And you know, it really had me looking into the world of like magic, marriage, young motherhood. I just really, I loved it so much. And it really had me rethinking a little bit about reality and illusion, destiny, choice. And even now, like four years after reading this book, it still haunts me. Hi, this is novelist and bookstagrammer Tracy Scochel thrilled to be asked to contribute to this topic on the Don't Talk to Me Unless It's About This podcast. So The Immortalist was one of my favorite reads a few years ago. I'm pretty sure I recommended it to every single person that I came across. I love Chloe Benjamin's story, the stunning, authentic, flawed characters she creates, all of whom ended up living their lives on a tightrope made of what if. I was most drawn to Clara's character, obsessed with her section terrified of what was going to happen. The pacing in that section is just brilliant. The end scene, when it's just her and the rope and you knocking on the door. Ugh. I mean, it all tied back to knowing her date, to her making a choice to make a prophecy come true. But God, the writing in that section is just heartbreakingly beautiful. I pulled one of my favorite quotes about Clara. It's not from her section. It's later in the book when Raj and Daniel have their encounter. So it goes, and my God, you're afraid. You're afraid that you could never do what your sister did. Stand on stage by yourself, night after night, and bare your fucking soul without knowing whether you'll be applauded or booed. Clara may have killed herself, but she was still braver than you. It's a quote that sums up when I read it, and still today, what I think it feels like to be a writer, to be an aspiring writer, to be a fledgling writer, to be a published writer, just that fear 
of putting yourself out there, but doing it and knowing that you don't know what's going to happen, but you just had to try. There was something driving you. In the end, this book reinforced for me that I don't want to know the future, which is funny because I read astrology all the time and I look for signs everywhere. But I think I just do it to kill time because I would never want to give up the freedom of not knowing what's going to happen next. That beauty of chance, the idea that things could turn out somehow other than you'd planned, it's such a beautiful concept. Well, I want to talk about the last sentence. I don't think we can we can finish here without talking about the last sentence. Okay. Let's do it. Let's talk about Let's it. Let's do it. Uh, okay. Well, we've got to read it first. It ends with Ruby's magic show at the senior citizen place uh, at Gertie's house. You know, wherever Gertie lives. I forget what these things are called. Healing hands. Home. I think. Is that what it is? Oh, okay. Yeah. On the other side, she could hear the audience whispering and fidgeting and rustling their cheap printed programs in anticipation. I love you all, she whispered. I love you all. I love you all. I love you all. Then she stepped through the curtain to join them. And I was just like, I am so struck by this final line and this final ending, which I don't remember from the first time. I think I'm reading so differently now that I'm writing and I love it. It makes it so much more fun because I'm able to see the genius and the beauty behind these things more. And I feel like just this phrase, then she stepped through the curtain to join them was not just about Ruby. It's also about Varya. She's stepping through the curtain of all her kind of uh, defenses to join the world, to join life. And she's going to live out the rest of her life. And the story doesn't see Varya through to the end of her life. The story started with the woman, Bruna, and this idea of magic. And then it also ends with the same. It ends with Gertie and Varya finally talking about that experience and with magic, with this magic show. And it has this really beautiful way of spanning multi-generations. It starts when the kids are young and they go see this older woman. And then it ends when the kid, well, most of the kids are dead, uh, but Varya is old. Gertie is very old. And we have this next generation, Ruby, carrying us into the future. And it's a story about family. And so I hadn't really appreciated this intergenerational and all the way from Saul to Ruby span in the story. And so I just really wanted to give a shout out to that last line. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a bold place to end a story with something, you know, Chloe Benjamin has some pretty in-depth thoughts and lines throughout her book. And then to end in such a simple, like when it was like those four words, right? Yeah, I love you all. Like the those four words could have been anything. And that's a very simple, very easy to grasp phrase, right? Not in practice as much, but mm-hmm. in theory. So I think that was kind of a bold um, way to end the book. Do you have any favorite sentences or final thoughts you'd like to share? I do. I do. You want to hear them? I do. Of course, my computer is not bringing it up at the moment. I had them all right here. This is is the problem with reading on a Kindle. Do you have yours handy? I have mine handy. Let's start with mine. Let's do it. Okay. The first one is about when we're finally finding out about Varya having had a baby, which is then Luke. 
And she gets home and says to Gertie, I can't talk about this again, not ever. And since that day, Gertie has not raised the subject. All the same, they talk about it constantly. For years, it was the lining to every conversation. It was a weight they carried heavily in tandem. That was number one. Number two, Mm -hmm. I had five, but I'm just going to read two. Number two is, oh, this is, well, this is after Varya meets Robert, which I just loved that that happened. Let's see. As she hikes from the cliff house to the old military hospital near Mountain Lake Park, she sees Simon posed by the remains of the sutra baths, where there was once enough space for 10,000 people to swim. She has no idea whether he walked these bluffs. The Richmond is at least 45 minutes from the Castro by bus. It doesn't matter. He's there amidst the scrub and lilac, his hair whipped by the wind off the water, clearing a trail as Varya follows behind him. Mm, I loved that scene. It was so visceral because I've been to those sutra baths, you know, as many of us have who visited San Francisco. And so I could really picture that, that moment there. Same. I noticed actually, I've been to a lot of the places in this book, San Francisco area and upstate New York. And the details of place she had really stuck out to me of, wow, the research into setting really makes a difference in a book to just make it feel natural that you reference, oh, not the neighboring town has this and that, but you reference places by names and you know things about them. And so that was a one of many writer lessons I took away from this story was her use of setting. Yeah. And it's, you know, going back to the idea of like choice, right? Like she is choosing to include some things and not other things. And you can't include everything. Otherwise, this book would be 300 pages of ex- of explaining San Francisco, right? Like mm-hmm. you, you can't do, you can't include it all. So what do you include? And the fact that it was like the sutra baths and, you know, which leads to a certain feeling other than saying like walking below the Golden Gate Bridge or, you know, like there's, there's so many sites in San Francisco that she could have chosen, but that was the one. And, and I think it is really interesting as a, to read it as a writer to be like, oh, I see, like, I see the pieces that you included and, and it's not the right or the wrong pieces, but it, it's leads to a certain, a certain feeling of atmosphere of, of place. All right. I'll give you mine. This is Without a job, who would he be? Someone who sat on a bath mat with his back against the toilet, reading about his brother-in-law's solarium. I just thought that was like so true about life, isn't it? Like fill in the blank with job without a blank, who would he be, right? And how many times are we just like paying attention to someone else's life? Totally. And it's just such a great uh, humorous reminder of, Oh, wait, even if he had a job, he's still a dude sitting on his bath mat reading about his brother in the hostelaria. <laughs> totally. Yep. Here's my another one. I, I Mine are mostly like parts of sentences, which I find interesting um, that that's what I choose. But this was Varya with, with Luke. And she said, the truth is that she has no room for anyone else's pain when Luke was talking about his family. And I thought mm-hmm. that is, you know, we often think of like, our emotional bucket is limitless, right? That we can like just be there for, for everyone. And we can, you know, we often don't have really strong, I, I'll talk to for myself. It was like setting those strong emotional boundaries is so important because the truth is that we don't have room for everyone's pain, right? Or 
some of us have small smaller amount of space for other people's pain. And so I thought this was a really so it was almost like permission giving, right? Like you can have permit you have permission to not have to take everyone else's pain in. I'm glad you brought that up that way because when I read that I was like, "Oh, Varya, this is your son. You've got to have space for him." I think in that moment she could have if she, I, not in that moment, but as a person I think she has the capacity if she, you know, once she's able to kind of go through her own therapy. But like you say, it is a reminder that actually maybe sometimes it's okay not to have that space. Yeah. I mean, she does, right? She go, ends up going back and having a relationship with him. And she even went first, calls him and says, I'm sorry, you know, about your brother. And I'm sorry about what's happened to the, to you. But, you know, at that moment, she didn't have the room. And it's mm-hmm. okay. We don't always have to have it. And then my last one is really is long. Um, and it's actually only the beginning and the end of it that are that really stick out to me, but I think it's important to read the whole place. So sit back and close your eyes. She would tell her 13-year-old self not to visit the woman. To her 25-year-old self, find Simon, forgive him. She would tell herself to take care of Clara, to sign up for J-Date, to stop the nurse before she took the baby out of Aria's arms. She'd tell herself she would die. She would die. They all would. She would tell herself to pay attention to the smell of Clara's hair, the feel of Daniel's arms as he reached down to hug her. Simon's stubby thumbs, my God, their hands, all of them. Clara's hummingbird quick, Daniel slender and restless. She'd tell herself that what she really wanted was not to live forever, but to stop worrying. I love that. I remember that. My God, their hands, all of that, all of them. That just kind of squeezed my heart out. And, I, you know, you and I have talked about this idea of, like, sometimes we're waiting for there to be no problems, right? We're waiting for the day where there's no problems and, like, we'll just get there. And that's not it's not true, right? But what if we could just enjoy everything that's happening but just to stop worrying? I would love that. Yeah. Cool. Talk about a call to action. You and I also have a song for Ruby because I think Ruby made a wonderful kind of second appearance in the second act, seeing her grow up. I really like seeing her character develop. And I've got two songs for Ruby because one is, I think, how things could have gone for her earlier in the book, how I imagine things going. And then the second song is how things turned out or how I think they're turning out in her future. So the first song is called Little Star by San Fermin. And This is how I think things started out for Ruby. You, summers in your bedroom, made yourself a kingdom, and everyone you knew said she must be a genius. Keep listening, keep watching, keep working, not stopping. Little genius, little star, you're everything they say you are. Is it lovely in the dark, or do you dim as you go on? The days they go, the credits show, the crowds they know. You, winters in the basement, trying not to face it, wonder where your kingdom went. And when they look at you, come on, little genius, do it like you used to do.
And then the way things are turning out for Ruby in life, I think we see that in the song Yellow Gold by Alila Diane. I shed my shadow like a dress when your love took hold of me. Colors, colors, swallow me whole. Weightless brightness, abandoning fear. Turbines spinning, indigo skies, mirages flicker on the endless desert road. But I'll be with you when the stars and sea are gone. Supernatural vacancy intangible. With an empty day at the end. Morning light painted us. Yellow gold. I shed my shadow like a dress. When your love took hold. This is a podcast, but it's also like more than a podcast. Don't Talk to Me Unless It's About This is a place for people in love and obsessed with storytelling to share in our admiration of books, music, comedy, and other forms of story, and to fuel our own creativity. So we have a Patreon community that you can try out for free. It's a place to continue these conversations off air to submit your own thoughts and topic ideas to be shared on the show, join a community to help you prioritize fun and enjoyment in your own creative endeavors, whether those are hobbies or professionally, and for us to come together for in-person events. You can see what the community is all about for free by signing up for our newsletter, where we'll share little teasers of what's going on in Patreon. Or you can go right ahead and join the Patreon right now. All the links are in the show notes. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. So please tell us by leaving a review, emailing us, or sending a message on Instagram. 